I think that uh, it would be uh, appropriate for us to have uh, time now for some questions and hopefully some answers. So what questions you have or what particular things would you like me to try to explain? So um, she would request um, some advice on uh, how to practice Kala Chakra at home without uh, having received initiation. Well, in theory, one uh, needs a, an initiation in order to visualize oneself as uh, one of these Buddha <laughs> figures. So without receiving the empowerment then to practice Kala Chakra by yourself at home would not include visualizing yourself as Kala Chakra, obviously. But there are certainly many practices in Sutra that uh, focus on a figure in front of you for attaining, for instance, uh, better concentration. So it's very commonly done, particularly in Mahayana, to visualize a small Buddha in front of you as a method for gaining, eventually, a state of shamatha, at, uh, at least for improving our concentration. So in terms of meditation, one could certainly visualize a small Kala Chakra couple. It doesn't have to be in the full form. It could be in the simple form with two arms and uh, use that as an object for gaining concentration. But in general, I think that uh, one should look in terms of uh, preparation for uh, eventually receiving a Kala Chakra initiation, which would mean to really uh, put a great deal of effort into laying the foundation, as we discussed, in terms of refuge, renunciation, bodhicitta, and the understanding of voidness. And also study and try to understand how Tantra works and gain some uh, confidence in the method. Because uh, when we receive an empowerment, one of the things that is very important is to have confidence in the Tantra method and to have some idea of how it works. And you can also study and familiarize yourself with the theory of Kala Chakra, and there's plenty of material of, on that, uh, particularly in my website. Okay, so what is the importance of going to an initiation? Okay, well, that's a separate uh, question. And you're talking about uh, what's involved with uh, being able to practice a protector. Let's speak about the first one first. First question. The most important thing in an empowerment is... Uh, actually taking the vows, receiving and taking the vows. Without the vows, without actually receiving the vows, you haven't received the empowerment. So there are the 
bodhisattva vows. Now, it is possible to take bodhisattva vows without a teacher, but more commonly, it's done at least in the beginning with the teacher. And in order to receive the bodhisattva vows, as Atisha points out, we need to have some basis in pradimoksha vows, at least the lay vows of a householder. And for that, you need to receive it from a teacher. And for the two higher classes of Tantra, there are the Tantric vows, and for that you need a Tantric master to confer them and to receive them. And you establish the relation or connection with the Tantric master during the empowerment. And the main purpose for that is not just uh, guidance, because in many cases we don't have personal contact with the teacher, but uh, inspiration. But we do need guidance for the uh, practice. So it might not be the teacher who actually gives it the initiation to us, but uh, maybe other teachers that give instruction. It's very important to follow the instructions of a qualified teacher. It's Otherwise, we can make a lot of mistakes, particularly in terms of dealing with the energy system and so on, that uh, can really mess you up. Also, as uh, we've discussed in terms of Buddha nature, the uh, networks, the Buddha nature factors, can be stimulated, inspired, uplifted. And this occurs during the empowerment. So during the empowerment, these uh, various factors within us, network of positive force and deep awareness, are stimulated. So the Tendencies that are there are strengthened through the ambiance and the visualizations and what you're actually doing. It's not just visualization, but what you are imagining. Remember, we're not just talking about some visual image, but uh, our understanding what's going on during the process. So, as is explained, you know, during the empowerment, we need to try to have a conscious experience of, at some level that we have, of the understanding of voidness or emptiness with a blissful mind. Some generation of bodhicitta during the uh, empowerment, the presence of the teacher, the ambiance of uh, the whole uh, situation and so on, makes an environment that's very conducive for having some level of experience. And that experience is what strengthens these uh, so-called seeds within us and plants more. The process of receiving an empowerment is something very, very active. We really have to participate and do something during it. It's not just sitting there passively like a baby that uh, somebody brings. Now, in terms of uh, initiation and empowerment, those are just two different ways of translating the same word. Empowerment is more literally the uh, Tibetan word. And the meaning of the Sanskrit word is to sprinkle. So sprinkling seeds and sprinkling in the sense of watering the seeds that are there already. Now, there's a difference between an empowerment and a subsequent permission. Subsequent permission is usually 
I don't know how that is translated as permission. It's usually permission is just by that, but actually it's subsequent permission. It's subsequent to the empowerment. So a subsequent uh, permission has to come after an empowerment. So my circumrinpache, my teacher, explained that the empowerment is like giving you a sword and the subsequent permission is sharpening the sword. So you ask specifically in terms of protectors. So protectors, one receives a subsequent permission for a protector, which means that first you need to have an empowerment as a yidam, as a, a Buddha figure that can command the protector. As a yidam, as a Buddha figure, in a mandala, which is a palace, we are like the master of the house. And we could stand at the gate and chase away interferences. We're certainly capable of that. But why do that if you can get a large dog? So the protector is like a large dog that stands by the gate and chases away interferences. This is how Sirkin Rinpoche used to explain it. So the protector is like a large dog, which, of course, you have to be very powerful to control. So you have to feed the dog. If you don't feed the dog, the dog will attack you. You're thinking of, you know, large Tibetan mastiff dog. Like a wolf or a bear, almost. So one has to be careful with Dharma protectors. It's not something to be done lightly. Practice. So, why are tantric practices kept secret? The uh, word that's translated as secret, I would uh, rather translate as private. These practices need to be kept private. Private in this sense. I mean, it's also can, it has the connotation of hidden. And we want to keep it private or hidden so that uh, it still is something sacred to us. If you make it open, other people, you're opening us yourself up to other people saying, oh, you know, this is crazy, this is stupid, what are you doing, laughing at you, and so on. And it takes all the sacredness out of it. In you have to fun. defend yourself all the time. Right? So I always take it to the extreme of, uh, you know, making fun of uh, this whole degeneration. It's like having a Kala Chakra ashtray. You know, I mean, you don't want it to be on that level, that it's so mundane that uh, people just treat it like, you know, an ashtray or something. Mm-hmm. Not special at all. The other one was pure perception. Right, pure perception. When we speak in Tantra, we speak of uh, four types of purity. So we imagine, with regard to ourselves, pure body, pure enjoyment, pure environment, and pure activity. So we imagine that our body is in a pure form. So when we talk about pure, we're talking about I mean, in in all of these, actually, I should say, purity, both from a conventional point of view and from a deepest point of view. So, from a uh, conventional point of view, then all of these four appear in a non-ordinary form. 
in a form that, as we've been discussing, can act as a forerunner or a facsimile of what we would have as a Buddha. So the body would be a facsimile of a body of a Buddha that is not born out of karma, but is born out of compassion to be able to benefit others in the ways that we have been discussing. And the way in which we enjoy things is not also generated out of, out of karma, of positive karma, that is not going to last, never going to satisfy, we always want more and so on, but it is pure in that sense, not mixed with or deriving from confusion, from <laughs> ignorance. You know, it's not uh, samsaric happiness, which is the suffering of change. That's not the type of way in which we want to enjoy things. And uh, the environment that we experience, we don't want that also to be in its ordinary form, which, again, is one of the ripenings of karma, the environment in which we find ourselves in, but uh, is a, uh, a pure environment, which everything is conducive, like a Buddha field, to uh, attaining enlightenment, so not some sort of polluted place with a lot of violence and all of that. And our activity, how we interact with others, is not the ordinary type, which is uh, driven by the compulsiveness of karma. And that's what karma is talking about, you know, just compulsively acting in a negative way or compulsively do-gooder, even when, you know, nobody wants our help. And being a perfectionist, this type of uh, neurotic way of trying to help. It's not that way, but it is generated purely from compassion, like with the Buddha. That's the conventional pure appearances of these uh, four. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, on the deepest level, mm-hmm. it's understanding the voidness of all of this. Not just the understanding of voidness, but trying to keep in mind that these are not self-established, that these don't exist in a self-established way. Understanding the voidness of all four of these. We try to imagine all of these things mm-hmm. not being concrete, sort of being like an illusion, to put mm-hmm. it in a simple way. That it doesn't exist in the way that it might appear to an ordinary mind. As being like encapsulated in plastic, you know, just self-established, all by its own power. There it is. I think a very good example of uh, what is a deceptive appearance of something being self-established is a website. You press some buttons and pop, there it is, a website. And you think that it's just self-established by itself. There it is. There's no appearance, no understanding even of the unbelievable amount of tens of thousands of hours of work by, you know, a huge team of people to make this, let alone the millions of hours that went into making an internet and a computer. None of that appears. No understanding of that whatsoever. It's just, whoop, there it is, website. And if it takes more than 0.3 seconds to appear, you're impatient. Very good example. So the pure appearance on a deepest level, it doesn't appear like that in this self-established way. 
It doesn't exist in that way. We can't establish that it exists just by the fact that it appears. It exists because of dependent arising, not just because it appears. It appears as though it's self-established. That's not the way it is. So all of this, these pure appearances, are on the basis of everything we've been speaking about, Buddha nature and the not-yet-happening enlightenment, and so on, that uh, this is the basis for these appearances. Bodhicitta, aiming at our not-yet-happening enlightenment, on the basis of that not-yet-happening enlightenment, there can be these pure appearances. And we can also see that in terms of everybody else, in terms of their Buddha natures. We're aiming at our not-yet-happening enlightenment, and with that not yet happening enlightenment, there will be these actual appearances, the body and the enjoyment and the environment and the activity. So there's a basis for these pure appearances. It's not just something crazy. And the same is true in terms of seeing a pure appearance of everybody else in the environment around us, based on everybody's Buddha nature. You understand not yet happenings? Tomorrow. Is there such a thing as tomorrow? Yes. Such a thing exists. Is it happening now? No. But it exists. Is tomorrow happening somewhere else? No. It's not happening now. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as tomorrow. It's not as if we traveled faster than the speed of light, we would get to tomorrow, now. And yesterday isn't happening somewhere somewhere else either. But we can remember yesterday, we can plan for tomorrow, they exist. But there's a difference between, in Buddhism, these are two different words. Something exists and something is happening. Exists means it's validly knowable. Something that's not happening now, we can still know it. Like yesterday or tomorrow. You don't see tomorrow. You don't see yesterday. You can see a representation, a picture of yesterday, a movie of yesterday. You can see a simulation of what might happen tomorrow. But knowing is not just seeing. We can remember accurately yesterday or not. It's not that we know that yesterday was yesterday. I can know what happened yesterday. I can remember that I had this for lunch and I spoke to this person and so on. So I can remember that. But that's not happening now. We don't speak about past, present, and future in Buddhism. That's Western concept of time. We're speaking about not yet happening, presently happening, no longer happening. First, it's not yet happening. Tomorrow is not yet happening. Then, now it's happening. It's no longer called tomorrow. And then, no longer happening. That was yesterday. 
Now, that's what we talk about. So when we're talking about our enlightenment, we're not talking about, don't think of it in terms of future enlightenment, as if it's, no, I don't know, future, you know, in the future, you know, sitting there, self-established in the future. Not like that. It's not yet happening. But we can think of it. We can aim for it. We can validly cognize it. I mean, don't think, you know, know in all the detail, but you can focus on it. It can be an object of cognition. Like tomorrow can be an object of cognition. There's no such thing as in the future. In the future means that the future is somewhere over here, and there, sitting in the future, is my enlightenment. The future doesn't exist anywhere. It's not happening anywhere. All that's happening is what's presently happening this moment. But imputed on today is a no longer happening yesterday and a not yet happening tomorrow. That's all that's happening now. What's happening now is the result of what's no longer happening. So it's a result, and on the basis of that result, you can impute that there was a cause. We can understand all of this in terms of cause and effect. Today is the result of yesterday. So on the basis of today, we can impute there was a cause, which was yesterday. Right? But yesterday isn't happening now. The cause isn't happening now. We can impute. Obviously, there was a yesterday. And today is the cause of tomorrow will be the result. But that's not happening now, but we can impute that there will be a result of now. So, when you're focusing on, with bodhicitta, on your not yet happening enlightenment, this is what we're talking about. The networks, what we have now, are the cause. And there will be a result. We don't want the result to be more samsara. We have to put something more into it so that it's not going to give as its result samsara. It will give as its result nirvana, enlightenment. Bodhicitta is so important, and yet it's not always very clear what it means and how you meditate on it. And often people just think that it's the same as compassion, which it's not. And in Tantra, this not yet happening enlightenment, in order to focus on that, you give it a graphic form. The body of a Buddha and the graphic form in terms of blissful understanding of witness. When you focus on yourself as one of these Buddha figures, you're focusing on it with bodhicitta. This represents now my not yet happening enlightenment. Body side and the mind side and the speech side, you know, as well, the mantra. So, in our focus, we are combining here renunciation, not going to have, you know, an ordinary appearance, 
Bodhicitta, this is what we're aiming to achieve, and the understanding of voidness, that this is not self-established, it'll come about from causes and conditions. Put it in a very simple way of, of dependent arising, it's more complicated, but a simple way. So, without the three principal paths, renunciation, bodhicitta, and voidness, tantra practice is, then it truly is weird. Truly I, is strange. Um, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, let's take a break, and then we'll continue. <laughs> 